If you want to go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2, if you're following along in your Bible, you can do that. We will pretty much spend our whole time this morning there in chapter 2. Um, every, every time I'm in the middle of a series, I always try to be conscious that each individual message kind of stand on its own, that we can walk out with something today that just is a cohesive thought. And my prayer is that that is the case this morning, but, but I do have to say, in my mind, last Sunday and this Sunday really can't be separated. Um, first of all, I say that because uh, in chapter 2, Paul doesn't separate them. In this letter to the Colossians, he interweaves this idea of being rooted and grounded in Christ, and yet he also gives warning about being careful of things that we receive that might seem very plausible and acceptable to us that are actually error and are actually dangerous for us. And so there are two concepts that he pulls together. And the way that we deal with the potential error is by being rooted and grounded in Christ. And so we will hit on some of those things this morning, but I just have to say those two really go together. And so I want to encourage you, um, if you didn't listen last week, go back and do that sometime this week, and, and you'll see how important it is that these two things fit together. So we're continuing our, our study in Colossians. This morning is part six. Um, I've titled this Plausible and Captivating or Delusional and Empty. And these are four specific words that we actually will find in Colossians chapter two that Paul uses to describe um, this warning that he's giving. And so as we get ready to jump into this, um, I want to do something maybe a little bit different. I love telling stories. And so I want to I give you guys a visual picture before we jump into this this morning. All right, has anybody ever seen an old movie? I think it was made in 1960. In 1960 by Disney called Swiss Family Robinson. Has anybody ever seen? Okay, more of you might get this than I originally thought would happen. Okay. Well, hopefully, if you haven't seen it, this will make some sense. So um, this family gets shipwrecked on this little island, and they discover there's all these exotic animals there. And the youngest member of this family is this little boy. I kind of picture him being like maybe eight years old. Does that feel about right to you guys that have seen the movie? In that range, elementary age. And this kid is like in love with every animal on this island. And, and he doesn't just love them. His desire is that they're his. And so, like, at one point, he's trying to catch this elephant, and there's all this stuff. But in the, in the midst of the movie, they find out there's a tiger on this island, and this kid wants to catch this tiger. And so they set up this whole scene where they dig a huge pit out, and then they lay over the top of the pit, like, all this brush and undergrowth, so it would kind of look like the lay of the, the jungle there. And then hanging right over the center of this pit is just like this big, huge chunk of meat. I mean, the mediator in me was like, I just want to throw that thing on a grill. Like, it's hanging there. And so as the movie goes, um, this tiger kind of comes crouching around, and he's around the edge of the pit, and he's looking at it, and he's sniffing, and he wants it. And it's exactly the way this kid had imagined it. I mean, he sat there visually, like, acting out what it would be like. He'll come, and he'll... He'll sniff over here and he'll sniff around over here and there's this thing that this little boy would do in the movie whenever he was trying to get an animal I don't know if you'll remember this but he says this line where he goes come here little buddy I wouldn't hurt you y'all remember that 
come here, little buddy. I wouldn't hurt you. Just, he makes himself just kind of small and weak and simple. And just, come on, little buddy. Come on to coax him along. And so here's this tiger, and he's just circling all around the pit. And sure enough, he can't resist. And he leaps out, and he grabs hold of that meat. And boom, he's caught. And he's in the pit. And the boy from up in the treetop, he knows what's just happened. And he's just yelling and running and delighted. I got my tiger. I got my tiger. And it's like, yes, he's got him. Believe it or not, that ties in with Colossians chapter 2 this morning. So let's read verses 4 and 8. And right off the bat here, this is where last week's message, I said these interweave. I'm leaving out verses 5, 6, and 7 because that's where we spent our time last week about being rooted and grounded in Christ. But it's important to me to just acknowledge here that the bookends to Paul saying we've got to be rooted and grounded in Christ, the bookends are these two warnings in verse 4 and in verse 8. And so verse 4 says, I say this in order that no one may delude you. Can you guys say delude? Wow, that was lame. Can y'all say delude? Delude. We're going to learn four words this morning, so I want you to be with me on these. Delude you with plausible. Can y'all say plausible? Y'all are getting better. All right. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Can you guys say captive? By philosophy and empty deceit. Can y'all say empty? According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So we've got these four words there. The first one I want to highlight here is this word plausible. See, Paul's warning them because the danger that they can fall into, it's not obvious. It actually sounds right. It sounds good. It's plausible. It makes sense. When you first hear it, you're just like, oh yeah, that's good. In fact, it makes so much sense that you would even attach it to Christ. You would attach it to being a part of the gospel. Yes, that's right. That's good. That's aligned with what I think. It is a plausible argument. It, it means speaking persuasively or using enticing words. It's the kind of thing that after you hear it, you just sort of say, yep, that sounds right. That makes sense. That's the picture there. Now, this word captive, you know, it's interesting to me um, the way we use words. Like if I, if I get sucked into a really good movie, a really good book, I might say it was captivating. And we use the word captivating in an appealing way, right? Like, ooh, it drew me in. It was so good. It was captivating. But do you realize what the end result of being captivated is? You're captive. You're caught. That's exactly what happened to this tiger in the movie. Everything, it looked great. It was appealing. There's these plausible words, this enticing, come on, little buddy, I wouldn't hurt you. Look at that big chunk of meat. Doesn't that look so tasty, so good? It was so captivating. And it appealed to the very nature of that tiger. It appealed to his very nature. It looked good. It tasted good. It was the type of thing that he would feast on that would keep him healthy and strong. But underneath of it was a trap. And so he reached out, he grabbed a hold of that thing which was captivating and find himself falling captive. That is the very thing that Paul is warning us that we can fall into as believers. We can be walking down the road in our relationship with the Lord, minding our own business, going to the same places we always eat to get refreshed and to get filled and 
we're walking through life, and if we're not careful, there is someone out there offering something that sounds right and looks captivating, but the end result is we're caught. And what happens when we get caught? We come to discover the other two words. The first is the word delude. Delude. Think about that. Have you ever like diluted something in water? Right? Like what is it, what is it doing? It's actually like it's weakening it. It's thinning it out. It may not even necessarily be dangerous, but something that was once powerful becomes so-so. It loses its strength. It loses its vitality. There are things that we can take in as believers that we don't even realize it, and it is sapping our strength. We begin to believe things that, that give us a total delusion and rip us off from the truth and the power and the hope and the life that is in Jesus Christ. And these things creep in and they suck that power away in our own life. And listen, in the lives of others around us, some of the biggest dangers with the things that we can fall prey to in our day and age, it doesn't just harm the church. It doesn't just harm me as an individual believer. It hurts people who are lost and in need. And because I've let this delusion come in, I've let the gospel get watered down and changed, it loses the ability to be life-saving for someone in need. We need to grab a hold of that this morning. We're going to talk about some specific examples in a minute. But it waters it down, it deludes it. Empty. That word empty, it means hollow, meaningless. It means aimless. It means fruitless. So I want to give you a practical example, and there are many of these. We're going to look in a few minutes at the specific example that the Colossians were dealing with, a few verses down, and in a lot of ways those affect us as the American church today. But I want to talk about some of the philosophy of our day that can creep in and delude if we're not careful. So I'm picking an example. This isn't the only one. But I'm picking an example. I want to talk about this idea of this word tolerance this morning. I want to talk about tolerance. Now, when you hear the word tolerance, the word in itself is not bad in any way. I think it's important to have a level of tolerance and tolerate people and be patient with people. And like, that's a right good word. But there's actually a philosophy of tolerance that creeps in and it's so close. Like, think about this. When someone is talking about tolerance, what I picture is they're looking for something like peace. Is peace right and good and desirable? It's not a trick question. Is that, is that desirable? I would think so. Yes. Okay. Peace is desirable. Love, acceptance. These are right, good, solid words. These are things that we crave. And when you take the word tolerance, this concept in our, in our culture, in our society, and you lay it against Christianity, it seems so right. It's very close. I mean, look at Jesus. Look at the person of Jesus. Look at the people that were around him, the diversity. Poor and rich alike came to him. They came as they were. He reached out to them. So he reached across like socioeconomic lines. There was incredible diversity there. Racially, Jesus ministered to Jews. He ministered to Samaritans, which Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And then they were all stuck under the Romans' rule. And Romans came to him. And Jesus could minister to these unique groups of people that had tons of conflict and hatred and anger between them. 
Sinners and outcasts felt welcome and drawn to Jesus. He loved them like crazy. And just as equally, insiders, priests, were drawn to him. Think Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. These guys were drawn to him. Jesus had this ability to reach a lot of people, a wide range of people. In fact, he reaches everyone. That's who Jesus is. That's his heart. So then when I hear our culture talk about tolerance, it just seems right. It just fits right snugly up against Jesus. And yet in some ways, it's so far away. In some ways, it's so far away. See, here's the deal. When we talk about the word tolerance, one of the things that comes in is that, you know, there's just a lot, there's lots of ways to live life. There's lots of philosophies. There's lots of religions. There's lots of, you know, you kind of fit, find what fits for you. And if that works for you, that's great. Like I've, I've got close friends in my life that this is the kind of dialogue that we have. That's great. And the idea is that if we let everyone find their own thing, that it's possible to all be at peace. I mean, it just sounds right, doesn't it? Like, let people be who they are, let them believe what they believe, let them think what they think, and if everybody is able to just step into that thing, we'll be at peace. There is no actual evidence that that is possible in any way, in any point, in any time in human history. It's a beautiful picture, it's a wonderful desire, and it's rooted in something right. It's rooted in something that Jesus is. Everybody can come to him as they are. But Jesus is also very clear on a point. He's the only way. He never shied away from that. I'm the only way. And so not only was he accessible to everyone, he also equally ran everyone off. Most churches in America are larger than the people that Jesus had following him at the moment of his death. We know the, the visual of like 5,000 people at different moments in his ministry. There was like 70, 120 around the time of the crucifixion. And even they were kind of like running scared when the going got tough. Jesus stood for something. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but by me. But see, the same person that says no one comes to the Father but by me also says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's so easy to slip into the delusion of, of tolerance and thinking, that's right, that's good. Every single person, who they are, the way they're made, where they're at, where they're living, they are in need of Jesus and he is accessible to them. Jesus will go down all kinds of different roads to find people and bring them home. He's accessible, but he also does not shy away from the truth of who he is. Jesus calls out the ideology and loves the person. He calls out the ideology and loves the person. He cuts through all the noise and says, this is the truth. And then he looks somebody in the eye and he lets them know, I love you, I forgive you, and will you accept this truth? Every person he makes himself available to, but he cuts through it. So how does this look in our lives? Like, how do we actually walk this out? I mean, many of you are probably sitting here this morning going, Jake, I, I agree with a lot of this, or maybe you don't agree with it and you're frustrated right now. I don't know what you're thinking, but how do we actually walk this out? 
Because we live in a world that is loud and noisy and there's lots of conversation. And what do I do? What do I do? How do I move forward? And the first thing I have to say that we do is we cling to Jesus to give us the ability to receive and understand his truth in my life first. I'm so ready to run and be an expert in somebody else's life, to let them know what they're lacking, what they're missing, what's going wrong with them. But am I willing to reflect in my own life and see how that plays out? I'll give you an example of this. The church may take a really strong stand on something like homosexual marriage. It gets really hard to talk as the church how seriously we take marriage when our divorce rate is massive. Does that make my stance against homosexual marriage invalid because we're kind of a mess in that area? No. But I have to be willing to let the truth of what Jesus wants to say shine first into my life. God, what is it in my life that you don't tolerate? Think about that question. God, what in my walk with you can you not stand right now? And you can't stand it because of how it's affecting people around me, but also you can't stand it because of what it's doing to my own heart. It's ripping me off. When I learn how to walk with the Lord in such a way where I invite Jesus in to shine a light on what he can't stand that needs to change in me, and I recognize that the Lord chastens those he loves, and I invite him in to change me, I think we'll be stunned to see how much easier it is to walk out with other people who are in need of real truth and real mercy because I've learned to walk that road myself. But if it's just outside of me, if it's just about what the world thinks that's wrong and what I want to say to them, I'm not going to have much to offer. But when I've walked that road with Jesus, where I've invited him to come be honest in my life and he's dealt with sin and struggles and, and forgiven and strengthened and changed me, I begin to have a, a place to walk forward with others. Now, here's where an equal danger comes in. And now we're going to move a little further into Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 16, 18, and then like 20 through 23. And we're going to see a specific picture of what Paul is warning the Colossians about. And I believe that this picture is a way that we can almost overcorrect and swing way over here when we're trying to grow in our walk with the Lord. And so let's check this out. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So he's reflecting back on some Old Testament law and ritual and tradition. What you eat, what you drink, certain times of the year, certain times of the week. Let no one pass judgment on you for those things. Skipping down to verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Now I want to pause right there because we're going to read this word once or twice. And I just want to make sure we understand it. The idea behind that word is severe self-discipline or avoidance of all forms of indulgence. Um, in other words, I'm going to grow spiritually by imposing some very strict rules upon myself. So it's not necessarily the Old Testament laws and rules and regulations that I'm trying to live that way. 
I'm just grabbing some disciplines, some behaviors, and I'm, I'm imparting into them more value than they should really have in helping me grow as a spiritual person. It's like rigorous self-denial, rejecting the pleasures of the world. That's kind of the picture there. Do y'all have a, is that a clear enough picture for you guys? That's asceticism. And so he says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. And then he says, or worship of angels, or going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This refers to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, they have indeed an appearance of wisdom. See, it's kind of that same picture of like, it's plausible. It makes sense. It has an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Can you guys say that? Self-made religion. And asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, he says there's three potential streams that we can begin to walk down that might make us think I'm, I'm doing something that's really helping me, lifting me up spiritually. It's a way even I can resist what's happening in the world around me. And one is, once I start following Jesus, I can get really intense and go, I'm going to go back and I'm going to start like fulfilling all the different laws. I'm going to eat those things that it talks about eating. I'm, I'm going to go to church on Saturday, not Sunday. In fact, it starts on Friday night and ends on Saturday night. I'm, I'm going really, to start getting into all these things. And what's funny is Paul's not even saying those are wrong in and of themselves. We'll see in a minute. He, he says, listen, they're just a picture of Jesus. They are just meant to point to something else. And so we can get caught up in that kind of old legalism. Now, if you don't think this is reality, maybe you haven't encountered this, there is a growing stream in America of people turning to that. They're looking for a deeper walk with God, a deeper spirituality. I even see people in English typing on Facebook a G and then leaving the O blank and then a D as if they're doing the original thing that they did in Hebrew where they wouldn't pronounce God's name. Now, I'm not judging choices people are making. I'm just pointing out, I think people are, are heaping burdens upon themselves that Jesus came to set us free from. If you want to do a little deeper digging on this, go read Galatians chapter 4. Paul writes to the Galatians and unpacks this whole thing. We have been invited into a relationship. We are no longer under this rule of, of law. But he goes on. He talks about something else. He also talks about this idea of restraint or godly discipline. See, we're really good at just inventing our own things. I can take a concept that's something that would be healthy for me to do, like fasting, which the scripture talks about, and I can make that a religious, ritualistic thing that I have to do. And if I'm really not careful, I can begin to let other people know how regularly I do that, and I'm kind of doing that right now. And, and we, lose, we lose the power that actually is in it of just choosing to connect with the Lord for a few days because we've given it more value than it deserves. See, we can, we can invent our own. There are streams that will even tie in things like, like there's actual streams of Christianity that will tie in what you're doing with your physical body and directly connecting your physical health to your spiritual walk with God. 
I walked with a young lady that was getting sucked into that by a group that was like, you were spiritually judged based on your weight. And so you come in and you do our health program and we tie it in with a bunch of scripture and you're not really spiritually healthy till you get down to this appropriate weight. And it was, it was devastating her and it was ripping her off. And yet she was thinking, I'm doing this right thing that God's calling me to do. And it took massive work untangling the truth from the lie. This happens in our culture and we need to be aware of it. Thirdly, this picture of spiritual awareness. Now I want to pause right here before we talk about this and just say, Next week, when we jump into chapter 3, Paul is going to talk in a very healthy way how we have spiritual minds. We are meant to have our minds with a heavenly viewpoint. We're meant to have that. I don't want to diminish that in any way. But there is a way of operating that becomes so self-indulgent in the emotional feeling and experience I get from being really spiritual I get a bunch of visions and they make me feel good. And then if I don't have some for a while, I really need to get some. Or like I have to have a prophetic word every other week or like something is missing in my life where it, the experience of what I gain from that spiritual awareness actually takes further precedence than just resting in my relationship with the Lord. A sure sign of danger is that it's very self-oriented. It's very self-oriented. He used the words self-made religion. He attached to the worship of angels, going on in details about vision, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Isn't that interesting? Paul actually connects a fleshly, sensuous mind with this overly chasing of the spiritual. In chapter 3, we'll see a really, really healthy way that we walk in spiritual awareness. Because listen, God does speak in visions, and he does speak prophetically, and he operates in, in a wonderful ways. I think we might be surprised, though, what he's usually doing when he talks to us in those ways, and we're going to tackle that next week. A good rule of thumb is that if that spiritual awareness tends to be focused on yourself, then what happens is it's in this meaningless vacuum. See, every one of these behaviors that we're talking about, you can do on your own. You could go follow the legalistic rules on your own. You could go create some new ones on your own. You could just have these spiritual encounters with just you and Jesus on your own. And there's a, there's a really good possibility that if it's just about you all the time, that the stuff that we think is helping us grow spiritually, that it's actually just theoretical because it's not touching real life. If something spiritual is happening to me inwardly, there's going to be a picture of that outwardly. My family should notice the benefit of something spiritual happening in me. It shouldn't be, wow, he's a jerk all the time, but I guess when he goes to his room and has some time with God, then things are pretty good for him. Something's off. If it's theoretical and self-centered, then it is just as delusional and empty as the philosophy of the day. See, if we want to be spiritual then we need to learn to hold on to Jesus and watch what happens when you grow within the context of his body. If we hold on to Jesus 
and we engage in real Christian community, that produces the atmosphere where true spiritual growth and health can happen. Now, if you don't believe me, that's fine. Let's look back at the scripture together. Let's skip verse 17. I already kind of referenced it. Verses 2 and 3 in Colossians chapter 2. He opens up this whole chapter emphasizing that he is battling, working on their behalf, the Colossians. He even references a town next door, Laodicea. He's battling on their behalf because he knows this letter is going to be shared with them. He even says, all the people that I'm never going to meet, that I'm never going to see face to face, I'm battling for them. And in verse 2, he says, this is what I'm battling for, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Do y'all see that? That is a group of people. That is a body of believers knit together in love. What does that produce? So that they can reach all the riches and full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything that we need to learn to grow, to be sustained, stuff we talked about in part two of this series, it comes through healthy relationship with Jesus and learning how to be knit together. He goes on, skipping down to verse 19. In the middle of all those warnings of what they're doing, he says in verse 19, what they're not doing is holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. He is saying that there is a rich growth that is available in a community that is knit together by love and rooted in Christ. Guys, this is actually the picture of what the world is craving for. When, when we as Americans scream tolerance, this is what we're saying we want. We long desperately to be a part of a community that's loving and good and at peace with one another. The problem is our country is rejecting the head. And you know what? We have a picture of what happens when you cut off the head. We talk about it. Looking crazy, running around like a chicken with its head cut off. There's a lot of energy, there's a lot of activity, but there's no, it's aimless, meandering, wandering, and you know what? It's going to die. It's going to die. It is impossible without the head to experience the kind of love and community that we long for. We've got to hold on to Jesus. It is also impossible to experience what he has to offer apart from community. We need to experience the joining together of those, those joints and those ligaments that pull us together and produce healthy growth. We were never intended to be individual soldiers of Jesus out there just on our own. We need each other. Now, I got to experience firsthand last summer what it's actually like to have a ligament really messed up. Um, about the end of May last year, I had a complete tear of my ACL in my right leg and it had to actually be removed and replaced. And there were some interesting things like I discovered walking through that journey. One was that when I first heard it, a day or two after I heard it, I actually started to think it wasn't that bad because I could still walk around kind of okay. It hurt, and if I stepped just wrong, it was like awful, but I could kind of get myself around. The worst pain was actually after my surgery. And what had happened was for weeks, because I wasn't on it, it wasn't just the ligament that had to be repaired. Everything else around it had atrophied. 
that one ligament allowed everything else, the muscles in my upper leg and my lower leg, the way that my knee flexed and moved, that ligament had allowed everything else to function in unison and stay strong and healthy. And when that ligament was damaged and had to be replaced, everything around it started to die, started to weaken. My hamstring got to be half the size of this one. It was bizarre. Like Amy and I would look and just laugh. Like it was comical. It's like over here is like skinny little 13-year-old boy leg and then over here is Jake's regular leg. We would laugh about it. It was crazy what had happened in just a few short weeks. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's using this very picture of how necessary the joints and ligaments are to join together. If I want to experience strength and life and growth in Jesus, I need to be linked up and learning how to live in community. And so when Jesus shows up and he's teaching me something, he's challenging something in my life that needs to grow, the way that muscle gets worked out is being around other people. When God says, hey, Jake, I want you to grow in patience, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to be around some people that require some patience. And that muscle is going to grow by being around those people. Is this making sense to you guys? This is what God calls us to. There are, there are plausible, captivating thoughts and ideas that we are surrounded by. And the way that we learn to guard ourselves against those ideas is holding fast to the head and living in a tight-knit community with one another. That's how we do it. That is also how we learn to engage with a world that's in need, to offer real life, real hope, where they can hear truth and mercy and don't see them as opposites, where they can hear love and truth and don't see them as opposites. They're meant to come together, and they only come together in Jesus. So I want to I kind of wrap this up. Are y'all good? I want to wrap this up with, with more just a picture for you guys. Y'all familiar with C.S. Lewis, great C.S. Lewis? Um, there's, a, there's a quote in his book, The Four Loves, that talks about something he learned in friendship. And um, it was him and these, these, these two other buddies. He was good friends with J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings fame and um, this other buddy, Charles Williams. And these three guys just had this group. They were called the Inklings. And they'd get together and they'd write and they'd discuss and they'd just do life together. And uh, I'm, I'm actually going to read a quote of a quote because I just want to highlight a book for a minute. This is one of my favorite books. It's called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. Well worth reading. If you want to figure out how to get your hands on it, I will help you. It's a great book. But towards the end of it, he's talking about the kind of community that God has for us. And he points to this quote from C.S. Lewis. So I just want to read this to you. C.S. Lewis says, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Now that Charles, their friend Charles had died, now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's, which is Tolkien, reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. 
Do you hear what he was saying? He originally thought, man, we're going to miss my friend Charles, but now I get even more time. For me, it's like I think of like Alex and Rob, and it's like, well, if Alex is gone for a while, I get even more time with Rob. That's great. But actually, something is missing when Alex isn't there. There's life. There's energy. There's plenty of jokes. Like, there's <laughs> there is stuff that comes alive in Rob that I get to experience because Alex is there with me. That's what he's talking about. There is additional life for us when we're in community with one another. And so he says, in this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim and Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, 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 to one another. Isaiah 6.3. The more thus that we share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. That's what God has for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know we're, we're tackling a big topic this morning and we've really just barely scratched the surface. But God, I thank you that in you is everything that we need, that you're the head of the body. You give direction, you give health. You put everything in its place. And so God, I just pray you would more and more every day produce in us um, the strength, the resolve, the desire to hold fast to you. God, help us not to be deluded or taken captive or watered down with additional things, Jesus plus. And God, I pray we also wouldn't be watered down with subtractions, detracting from who you are. God, I pray we'd also see one another in the value of living in real community with one another. God, it's hard. That's why it's so good. It can be fun, it can be life-giving, it can be challenging, it can be hurtful, it can be difficult. But Jesus, if you are in it, we will find ourselves knit together more and more, rooted and grounded in your love for us. And so our love for one another will grow. God, I pray you would give us a vision for this. And then God, I pray that you would help each of us to practically look at our own lives and see how we might hold fast to you and watch ourselves be knit together by you. We crave that. God, we have, we have a heart that breaks for the world around us. God, it's getting to a point where every Sunday we could run through a list of the tragedy that's taken place just in the last week. God, our world is craving love and peace and life that it can't get its hands upon. And Jesus, we recognize you're the only way. Would you help us to walk in grace and love and mercy with a world that is hurting and in need. God, help us to share truth and love. As we walk with you and walk with each other, God, would you give us the resource that we need to help the world around us? We love you and we need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.